You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, Revolution Church. I'm glad you guys are here. Cool. Uh, do I, know? I think I see a few new people. Hi, I'm glad you guys are here. My name is Dave. I am the teaching pastor of Revolution Church. Um, and what we are doing this evening is we are continuing our study through 1 John. What we do here is we do verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Um, that's how we preach. It's called expositional preaching. It's good stuff. Uh, but our study of 1 John, uh, I, I titled this series Simple Truths because in this letter, John reminds us of the core truths, the foundational truths of our faith. And we need to hear it over and over again because we tend to forget because the people of God are usually pretty slow to hear uh, and even slower to act on what we know. Um, so you probably aren't going to hear things uh, this evening that you don't already know, but that's not the point. Right? As I've said a lot of times uh, before I preach, we come to the preaching of the Word so that we may be reminded of what God has done and how we ought to respond. We do not come to the preaching of the Word in order to learn something new and uh, necessarily have our intellect fed, but we come to have our hearts stoked, to have a greater zeal for God and a greater affection for Him. Uh, but this evening, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. I strongly recommend you guys use a hard copy this evening because this thing is just super unreliable and we're too cheap to get another one. Uh, so there you go. Um, <laughs> but no, so just so you know, I recognize if you're reading, um, verse 21 has a semicolon, right? So you'd be like, hey man, you're cheating. You're not telling us like the whole thought there. We're going to address that next week and that's why we do verse by verse exposition up in here, right? So we'll be picking up in verse 22 next week, so don't worry about the semicolon. Uh, but a heads up for you, uh, this is one of a couple of incredibly, like just really hotly debated passages in 1 John, right? Again, I'm not just saying that, uh, because whenever I first read this text on uh, last Monday, uh, I spent a few hours thinking about it and was just kind of like left scratching my head. I was, I was having a hard time seeing how the verses fit together, the big thoughts that John was trying to push forward, and I thought that I was just really dumb. Uh, like I normally do whenever I'm studying. Uh, but then I read in a commentary on Tuesday, uh, the, the commentator, I forget what his name was, but he says, this passage is a locus vexissimus. I said, okay, I don't know Latin, so let's Google that because uh, I'm dumb. And uh, I Googled that, and that means a vexing passage. <laughs> so a dude with a PhD said, hey, yo, this text is really hard to understand. Right? People have spilled a lot of ink over this. It made me feel a little bit better about myself. Uh, so just so you guys know, there are tons of debate on the nuances of the Greek in these first two verses that we're going to be looking at. Uh, but I brought that up. I like to bring that up whenever I have a really hard time with the text uh, that I have to preach on. Uh, because I want you all to know, uh, one, I'm not some genius. Uh, I have resources available to me that are available to you, right? It's not that God is like audibly speaking to me in the study, which would make sermon prep a whole lot easier. But he's not doing that. Uh, right, so whatever I come to my conclusions, you guys can come to those same conclusions if you'll just study the scripture, right? Now, I just want you guys to be encouraged that some parts of the Bible are just legitimately hard to understand, like for real. Some, par some parts are just really hard, even dudes with PhDs that can read the Greek and read the Hebrew and the Aramaic, they're still sit left going, uh, we're just going to fight about this until Christ comes back, um, right? But the Bible is not impossible to understand. So if I can encourage you, if you guys are having a hard time reading your Bible, saying, man, I still understand a lot of this stuff. The Bible's not an impossible book, but it is a difficult one in spots. So keep pushing, keep studying, and be a student of the Word of God. That's what I want to encourage you to. Um, but anyway, sorry, now that we're done with that rabbit trail. Uh, tonight, we are going to be looking at the doctrine of assurance. 
All right, so more on that in a minute. Uh, but sometimes we, we go through seasons of life where we question our salvation. Be honest. Raise your hand in here. Who, who's questioned whether or not you're actually saved? Right. That's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm kidding. Like, that's not like a great thing. Because like, that's a miserable experience to go through, right? But most of us have went through that. Where we question ourselves, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Will I really go to heaven? Have I really received the forgiveness of sins? Or whenever you start getting a tad more theological, have I really been born again? Am I really regenerate? Have I really been changed by the working of the Holy Spirit? And those times can be really miserable for us. They can be utterly miserable. If you've been through it, you know what I'm talking about. You dread waking up. You don't want to live anymore sometimes, but you also don't want to die. Right, because you're not entirely sure where you're at with God because you have no assurance. It's just a miserable way to live. Um, But in our text this evening, John tells us the remedy to those times when we lack assurance. And this is, again, though very hotly debated, uh, the the meaning of this text is actually fairly simple. And it's beautiful and very encouraging. So I'm going to read this text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get down in it. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Let's pray. Holy Trinity, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the encouragement found in it. Holy Spirit, please open our hearts and open our ears that we might receive this, that we might, that the congregation might undergo the, the ministry of receiving the word and hearing the word. Holy Spirit, please empower me to preach the word and point to Christ and Him crucified. God, do a, do a work of sovereign grace here. Show us how we might have assurance. Let us be challenged by this text, but ultimately let us find, let us find rest in Christ Jesus. Please do this for us. And if any unbeliever is among us. I pray that you'd woo them with this message that they can actually know that they're saved if they come to Christ. That assurance, God, that has brought so many to you, that you're a God that's not like other gods. You want us to know your love for us and be convinced of it. Let that woo the unbeliever towards you. God, please do a work here this evening. Let me ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So verse 19. Right? By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Right? So he starts out, as he started out uh, a lot of, uh, just a ton of times throughout this letter. It's a constant refrain you'll notice in 1 John. By this, you will know. Or by this, we know. Or by this, you shall know. Right? This indicates to us that John is going to be dealing with the doctrine of assurance. Generally speaking, whenever John says, by this, you will know or you shall know, or whatever. He's either letting the Christian know, hey, by this, you can have assurance of salvation, or on the other hand, by this, you can know that whoever you're dealing with is actually not a Christian, (laughs) right? So it's kind of double-edged. Usually that's how he's using it. So by this, we shall know, indicates to us that John is dealing with assurance. Now, in the scope of the whole letter, if you've been here for the whole series, you're probably getting sick of me saying this, uh, this is one of John's main reasons for writing, right? He actually tells us that in chapter 5. I write these things so that you may know Right? That you may know that you are of the truth. That you may know that you have trusted in Christ. So that's one of, assurance is one of the big reasons for John writing. Right? As the heretics in the church in Asia Minor were causing problems, the believers who were there, the actual Christians who were there, wanted to be certain that they themselves were actually Christians. 
because right? these false teachers were causing all kinds of problems. That, and they wanted to be able to spot a false one, so John writes this letter to them. And throughout this letter, John gives, as you guys have seen multiple times, he gives tests to determine whether or not someone is a true Christian, someone is a true believer, someone has actually been born again. And John says really hard things in his tests. Right? The, someone who's been born of God cannot go on sinning. Right? Yeah, good one. Right? That's, that's a hard one. We dealt with that one a, a couple months ago. Right? John deals in black and white all the time. Black and white categories does not leave a lot of room for gray. But in these verses that we just read, he gives us a ton of encouragement. Right? And that's something that he's prone to do after giving really tough tests. John will like, take a step back and be like, but hey, yo, for you Christians, just hear me on this. Here's some encouragement. Now let's get back to the test and we'll beat your face in a little bit more. Um, that's kind of how John goes back and forth. It's a big ebb and flow. Uh, but okay, assurance. What are we talking about whenever we talk about assurance? Assurance is certainty of the mind. Certainty of the mind. In, in, in Christian theology, assurance is essentially this. Being fully convinced that you have been made right with God. Being of certainty of the mind that you have been reconciled to your Creator. Knowing beyond a doubt that salvation is yours. Right now, uh, a few words on assurance. Uh, assurance is a great grace and aid to the Christian. Right? God did not have to promise us assurance. Like this is, this is an interesting thing to think about. Like God can save us without letting us have the peace of assurance. You ever considered that? Like God could bring you from death to life by the working of His Holy Spirit and then just leave you hanging wondering if He like, did that. Like He doesn't have to give us peace. He can give us the test to judge ourselves by, but He could, he could never have promised us peace. Right? But this is a great grace to us that God gives us the peace of assurance because our God is not like the false gods of other world religions. Right? And every other religion aside from... Christianity, biblical Christianity, is a false religion that sends people to hell. Our God is not like those false gods. Our God actually wants us to be fully convinced of His great love for us. He wants us to know, right? Unlike the God of Islam or the the various gods of various religions where you live your whole life wondering, am I actually going to be saved? Am I actually going to be be, be going to heaven? Even the God of what a, a lot of junk that would pass for evangelical Christianity where you never really know if you're saved and you can lose your salvation if you sneeze wrong and so on and so forth. Our God is different from that. He wants us to know that we're saved. God does not want a people who are constantly worrying if He will save us from hell. But God wants a people who are settled in their hearts of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ our Lord. He wants peace for us. Romans 5.1, since we have peace with God through faith in Christ Jesus, right? He wants us to have peace. That's what he has for us. Now, assurance is something that can be gained or lost, right? Assurance is something that can ebb and flow, kind of like a tide, right? And I just want to be real clear. I am talking about assurance, not justification. I'm not talking about your salvation, but I'm talking about your peace that comes from, from justification, that comes from being made right with God. You can lose your assurance of salvation, and you can lose it through a great many different ways. You can lose it through disobedience to God. You can lose assurance for a period of time because of your sin. Because of some indwelling sin that you have refused to deal with. And you have seared your conscience against the Holy Spirit's prompting, telling you to repent. And God takes your assurance from you. You can lose your assurance because you neglect the means of grace. right? Because you're neglecting prayer. 
The reading of the word, neglecting corporate worship, taking of the Lord's table. God can take your assurance from you in that. And God will take assurance from us as a form of discipline. All right? And I would want to distinguish punishment from discipline here. Discipline is corrective. God, God will take our assurance from us in order to push us towards repentance. Right? Whenever you're sitting there going, am I really saved? It's kind of like ding, 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 ding. Red flags are going off. What's going on in my life? Why do I feel this way? This could be God's grace toward us. But sometimes, and you read this in the 1689 Confession, and you read this in the Psalms, this is where they get it from. The Confession isn't just making stuff up. God may just hide his face from you sometimes. You ever been there? That's fun. When God just hides his face from you in order that you might walk by faith and not by how you feel. He just hides his face from you. He's purifying our faith in those instances and making us push into his promises. But hopefully, we all have assurance the majority of the time. That's, that's what I hope. That's what I hope that your experience is. Because as most of us know who have dealt with this, struggled with this, especially if you're an, a, a new Calvinist or new to the Reformed tradition, have I been chosen? Right? That's a misery to live in until you study a tad more. Um, the lack of assurance can drive you absolutely insane. Living without assurance of salvation is a miserable way to live. Always questioning if God accepts you or if you're going to suffer his wrath is horrible. So in light of that, assurance is something that we should all strive for, right? Like 2 Peter 2.10 says, right? Make your calling and election sure. That's what Peter implores us to do. Make sure that you're in Christ. So we should do what we can to gain assurance. We should walk closely in obedience to Christ and trust His promises to us. All right, and I want to make one last note on assurance. Again, I, I, I can't, I, I get a little bit nervous sometimes. I want to make everything very plain. Assurance is not justification. Okay, your assurance of salvation or your assurance of salvation is distinct from your salvation itself. Right? Justification is a one-time decree. And even if you've heard this a million times, hear it again. This is good. <laughs> justification is a one-time, once and for all, decree of God that a sinner is now counted as righteous through the person and work of Christ. That's justification. And it's given to the sinner. By faith alone, in Christ alone. And the decree of God is irrevocable. Once God says something is something, it is. Once God decrees a sinner is right with Him, there is no going back on it. God writes things in stone. Justification is eternal. But assurance is the feeling of peace with God. Feeling confident that God accepts you in Christ. So hear me on this. This is kind of a weird thought. You can be justified and lack assurance. You can be objectively justified without having the subjective experience of assurance. Just like, as you guys have seen me maybe do on campus, uh, to an atheist, God still exists even if the atheist doesn't believe it. Right? Their unbelief does not change the truth. Right? You can be right with God and yet not feel like you are right with God. You can be justified in God's sight but lack peace in your heart at times, is what I'm getting at. But as we strive to gain assurance, often, our biggest obstacle will be the fact that our heart condemns us. Right? Verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us. Right? Notice it says, whenever. When your heart condemns you. Whenever it does. Not if, but when. This is something that we can expect to happen. This is something that will happen to you at some point if you're a believer. 
in light of the, the wording that, that John uses here, whenever our heart condemns us, tells us that this is probably going to be a more normal experience than we would like. I know that I've, I've dealt with this uh, lack of assurance a lot personally, and I'm sure if you talk to a believer who's been a Christian way longer than me, they'll, they have dealt with it many times. Right? This is probably going to be more normal experience than we'd like to admit, even for very mature believers. This is all of us. You know, the heart condemning us. This is something that we all know about. You know, for some reason, for some reason, maybe you're studying the Word, you're new. Again, I keep using this because I know, I, I know our demographic here. I know a lot of our people. Maybe you're new to Reformed theology. You're studying the Word. There's an instance of sin in your life. You might find yourself comparing yourself to another believer who is more mature or stronger in their faith than you are. But for some reason, whatever it may be, you begin to ask, am I saved? Have I been born again? Do I really love Christ? That's the condemnation of the heart. Now, our hearts are very, very good at condemning us because we know what we are, don't we? We know that we're gutter trash at the end of the day. Like, that's really what we are, apart from Christ. That's what we are. That's what we were born as. We're sinners. We know our sins. We know the lust in our hearts. We know the lying. We know the cheating. We know the neglect of our spouse. We know the laziness. We know the lack of love that we have, that we have had for our fellow Christians and our neighbors in general. We know of our neglect to raise our children properly in the fear of the Lord. We know our neglect of the Scriptures, of prayer, our selfishness, our foolish decisions. We can go on and on. We know what we are. We know how bad we are. And we know more than anyone else. Which is why usually if you're going through an instance of lacking assurance and another Christian comes up and says, Oh, come on, man. I know you're a Christian. You're like, you don't know. You don't know anything. You don't know what I am. I know what I am. And our heart will tell us Christians don't do that. You ever felt that? You, just, you seriously just eat it. You commit some, some grievous sin, and your heart says Christians don't do that. And when I say that, I mean it is not possible for a Christian to do that. You ever felt that? Christian, or, or Christians don't feel that way about people. Christians don't desire this. Christians don't want to commit this sin, whatever it may be. Christians don't have that attitude. There is no way that you're actually saved. And we will condemn ourselves for our sin. We will feel, feel the guilt of our sin and begin to question our standing before God. And what's worse, I'll lay this there. I'm not here to make you feel better, I promise. Most often, your heart is right. Your heart is right in its, con in its condemnation of you. You have done wrong. You don't feel guilty. You are guilty. You've broken the commandments of God. And again, I'm not taking myself out of that group, but your heart is totally justified in its condemnation of you the vast majority of the time. We have actually done wrong. We are objectively guilty. We truly deserve the condemnation of God. But then we tend to take it one step further and begin to think that we're not Christians. That we're not saved. Now, I want to make a note before we go any further. When we feel condemnation, when we feel a lack of assurance, we should be very careful. We should take it very seriously. Our heart accusing us may, 
I'm not saying it always is, but it may be God's grace to us in bringing us to repentance. God is taking our assurance from us in order to bring the sin to our attention that we might repent. So feeling self-condemnation, feeling the condemnation of your heart is not something to be ignored out of hand. You're a fool if you do that. We do not ignore this out of hand. In the moment when the heart condemns, you should begin to search your life for sin. And then repent where you see it. Do that first. Do that first. Before you apply anything else from this text, do that first. All right, because who knows, maybe we've seared our consciences against the Holy Spirit because we really enjoy a sin, and we don't even view it as a sin anymore. So always check your life. Do a survey of your life. Where is some sin? Is God convicting me? Or is this the Holy Spirit's conviction? Or is this my heart condemning me unnecessarily? What's going on here? Always do that first. But John says that when the heart condemns, there are ways for us to silence it. And that's our focus now. So John, I would argue from this text, um, he gives us two ways to handle the condemnation from our hearts. So the first one This is our first line of defense, okay? So this is not our foundation. This is just the dudes on the front line against our heart, right? If we're going to picture a war, kind of cheesy, whatever. If we're fighting against the condemnation of the heart, this is first line. This is not the big gun that we have in the back, but this is the, the foot soldiers. This is the front line. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So again, by this we shall know. That by this, that this there is a reference to the text preceding this that talks about our loving the brothers. All right, by this you shall know. If you love the brothers, right, you'll know that you've passed from death into life because we love the brothers. So that's the immediate context that John has in mind. John tells us that genuine love for the people of God will mark us as the people of God. Right? By this we shall know that we are of the truth that we are in the truth, that we are children of light, that we are children of God, right? In verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, By this it is evident who are sons of God and who are children of the devil, right? And one of the things he says is the one who does not love his brother is a child of the devil. So then the one who does love his brother is a child of God. So that's this idea, by this we shall know, is this recurring idea that we've seen throughout First John of having evidence that we are the people of God of having evidence to produce that we are saved, having something that we can point to objectively as proof. By this, we shall know. So follow me on this. don't want to lose anyone. In the immediate context, John is pointing to the one test of loving other believers as proof that we're Christians. Okay, that's what he's immediately referencing. But in the context of the whole letter, Right? We see three tests. So just laying this out there, you want to look at the context within the verse. Right? You don't just want to, want to isolate one phrase. But what's the verse say? What's the passage say? What's the chapter say? What's the book say? What's the whole Bible say? Right? So that's how we study the Word. We want to look at it in a, a small context, immediate context, and work its way out and see how it fits in with the rest of the book that we're in, that fits in with the rest of the Scriptures. Okay? So in the immediate context, he's referencing the love test. But in the context of the whole book, we see three tests. For assurance. The first one is the doctrinal test. Right? Believing rightly about Christ and his gospel. Right? That you're a sinner. That you need Christ, the satisfier of God's wrath, the righteous one, 
for the forgiveness of sins. Believing that Christ is truly God and truly man. That Christ is going to return again. Again, these are closed-handed gospel issues. So there's a doctrinal test. If someone errs on any of those doctrines, they're not a Christian. Rather, if they get those doctrines wrong and are being unteachable and teaching others to follow in their heresy. Okay, but there's a doctrinal test to see if you're a Christian or not. Where you believe rightly about Christ and His gospel. The second test is the moral test. Right? That the Christian walks in obedience. The Christian walks in holiness. The Christian loves the commands of God and seeks to rid themselves of sin. And that if someone lives a completely immoral life with no repentance, they're not a Christian. And then thirdly, we see the love test that we've been going on for the last two or three weeks here. Where the love for your fellow Christian marks you as one of the people of God. That if you meet someone who hates the church, who hates their fellow believers, that there's no way that that person is a part of the church. And all of these tests are coupled with phrases that tell us the promise of knowing you're a believer. By this you will know you're a child of God. By this you you will know you are in the light. By this you will know you are of the truth. In Him. All of these phrases... So all of these tests are are coupled with the promise of assurance. So I brought that up because though John is pointing only to the one love test in verse 19 as the grounds of assurance, the scope of the whole letter would tell us that if we are passing all three tests, then we can have the assurance of salvation. Only passing one or two won't do it. So just laying this out there. If you have right doctrine concerning Christ, but live a sin-filled life and hate Christians, you're not saved. Likewise, if if you love Christians and live very morally and attend church every week and walk very closely with the way that the Scriptures would have you walk, but then deny something like the deity of Christ, you're not a Christian. You see what I'm getting at? One or two won't do it. Got to have all three. So we must pass all of these to have assurance. So John references one here, but we must keep in mind the context of the whole letter. So keeping all that in mind, I know that was a bit tedious. You guys are doing great. (laughs) And I got the mic, so it don't really matter. So we're going to keep going. So keeping all that in mind, I think that the principle of verse 19 is that our works are the first line of defense when our heart condemns us. And if you're reformed, that might make you uncomfortable, but you'll be all right. Our works are the first line of defense when our heart condemns us. Your works do not save you, right? In no way, shape, or form will we add to the merit of Christ on our behalf. Christ's merit was more than enough. It was perfect for us. He was the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfier of the wrath of God. He has obeyed in our place. But our works are the evidence of what God has done in us. They are evidence that we have been saved. So when our heart condemns us, we ought not fall into despair. Okay, rather, we should survey our lives. We should survey our lives, do some self-examination, do some self-reflection, and hold up these tests that we see throughout 1 John, hold them up to the record of how we live, and see if we pass. Right? Hopefully we do. Right? So, pose some questions to you if you're someone struggling with assurance. Are you growing in love for your fellow Christians? Are you growing in obedience to God? Are you growing in holiness where you hate what God hates and are beginning to love what He loves? Are you growing in strong doctrine concerning Christ and His gospel? Do you have good works 
fitting with conversion. Because if you do, then you ought to have assurance. That's what John's saying here throughout this whole letter. If you're growing in those areas, you ought to have assurance. Because you have evidence to lay before the accusations of your heart. You have evidence on the contrary of what your heart is condemning you of. But the opposite is also true. The opposite is true. Where there are no good works, there can be no assurance. Right? Where there are no good works, there can be no assurance. Think of it like a courtroom. Right? You're the defendant, and your heart is the prosecutor. The heart accuses you of unbelief, of being a hypocrite, of being a false convert, and questions your salvation. If you have no works, you are left with no evidence and are standing there stammering like an idiot before the accusations of your heart. You have nothing. You have no defense, essentially. If you have no works, you're left with no evidence. So where there is no fruit of salvation, then there can be no assurance and peace that salvation has actually taken place. That's what I'm getting at. So in verse 19, we see that we can examine ourselves by the tests throughout this book to see if we belong to God. But I'm really glad that John doesn't end there. I'm really glad for that. Because sometimes, and if you're like me and you already know this book, sometimes when we engage in self-examination, you may become very alarmed at the result. I become shocked at what happens. Because our heart will often ignore the fact that we are growing in those areas. Which is really what John is getting at. Right? John paints in black and white to make a point of how serious it is that we be striving to grow in these areas, in these tests. That we would grow in our love for people. That we would grow in our obedience to God. And that we would grow in strong doctrine. He's really pushing that hard. But our heart will often ignore the fact that, we're, that we are growing in those areas. And our heart will instead hold up the fact that we are not perfectly hitting the divine standard that God has set. We'll ignore the growth and say, but you're not perfectly there. Like God says you must do. You must be. Or, though you can see that you passed the tests, and and that's not the case. You can see that you passed the test. You can see that you ought to have assurance. But for some reason, you just cannot shake the feeling that you're not saved. You understand the passages. You understand that John's talking about growth, and he's not expecting perfectionism or any of that garbage theology. But, But you still can't help but but shake the, you can't shake the feeling that you're not saved. This happens a lot. This happens a lot to some good brothers that I know. We go through the tests. We talk about how there's growth in all these areas. And they say, but I don't feel saved, man. I don't have peace. What do we do then? I think John had that in mind whenever he wrote verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. God is greater than our heart. So the heart can condemn all it wants, but in the courtroom of God, it is not the judge. Thanks be to God for that. The heart can accuse, but it cannot condemn. It does not have the authority to do so. Because God is the only judge. This is terrifying for the unbeliever that God knows all things and God is the judge. But for the believer, for the Christian, this is relief for us. 
says, and God knows everything. So yes, God knows every sin. Absolutely. I'm not making light of that. God knows every failure you've ever had to obey His commands. He knows every act of disobedience, every instance of rebellion in your heart. He knows it all. It's all before Him. But He also knows our love for Him. He knows the the root desires of our hearts that don't always match our actions. He knows our longing for Him. He knows our penitent hearts when we sin. He knows our trust in the Lord Jesus. In a nutshell, He knows everything. He knows who belongs to Him. He knows even when we are not sure. He knows. He knows even when we're not convinced that He has caused us to be born again of His Holy Spirit. He knows even when we're not sure that Christ Jesus has died for us. He knows even when we're not sure that He chose us in eternity past to be holy and blameless before Him in Christ. So even when we condemn ourselves, God knows the truth that we have been justified by the work of His Son. God is greater than our hearts. Which means He is greater than your self-condemnation. He is greater than your self-condemnation. God has forgiven us in Christ. His love and forgiveness and decree of justification is greater than any condemnation you could throw on yourself. I got a quote from you from the Reformation Study Bible. It's a good one. The Word of God that acquits believers must prevail over the Word of our hearts that condemns us. The Word of God that acquits believers must prevail over the Word of our hearts that condemns us. So in the moments where we lack assurance, what do we do? Where we can't shake it. We trust the declaration of God. That's what faith is whenever it comes down to it. I trust what God has spoken. Regardless of how we feel, we trust the promise of justification through Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Skip down to chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who intercedes for us to the Father. And He is Jesus Christ the righteous. So though you are not righteous, you are promised a righteous advocate who intercedes for you, whom the Father eternally loves. Not only that, but He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfier of the wrath of God for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For all who trust in Him. I hope we can see that in John showing us, so hear me on this, I hope you can see this. In John showing us a ground for our assurance in good works, but then acknowledging that our hearts can still condemn us, proves to us that in the final analysis, we must rely wholly on the work of Christ as the foundation of our assurance. Works are a good front line, but they are not the foundation. 
the work of Christ is our foundation. It is Christ's work and God's declaration over us that gives us ultimate assurance. Because God gets the last word. Always. Always. To paraphrase Paul in Romans 8, it is God who justifies. Furthermore, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who is there left to condemn? Who dares bring a charge against God's elect? Even you. The elect can't bring a charge against the elect. Because it is God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? Who dares contradict the Almighty God? The God who justifies the ungodly. Who gave Christ the righteous to suffer for the unrighteous? Who dares contradict Him? Tell that to your heart. It's very interesting to me in studying this that, that our works can provide a measure of assurance, but not always. And that was very interesting for me to think about. They can provide a measure of assurance, but not full assurance. I think pretty convinced, actually, that this is because God desires a people who continually rest in Christ and the promises through Him. That's what God desires. A people who continually rest on Christ and the promises found in Christ. And God's greatest promise to us is that Christ has taken the penalty for our sin and has given us His righteousness to be received by faith. So our assurance is this, that we appeal to God's promise regardless of how we feel. This is how we appeal to God in the moments where we question whether or not we're saved. Go to God, you promised. You promised. You're a faithful God and you promised that through Christ I would be reconciled to you. And I trust that. No matter what, I trust Him. I trust Your promise. I know You're a faithful God even when I'm unfaithful. Even though I feel this way, I know You'll be good to the promise You made. That is our cry. That is our plea. That is our assurance when our heart condemns is the promise of God founded upon Christ Jesus, life, death, and resurrection in the place of sinners. That's our assurance. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Not shame. Not terror. We have confidence before God. He says, if our heart does not condemn us, and it doesn't, is what he's, the idea he's carrying. So you can read it like this. Since our heart cannot condemn us because it doesn't have the authority to do so, we have confidence before God. Because our right standing with God comes from God. Because of that, we have confidence before God. We have a holy boldness when we approach God through Christ Jesus. We know that we will never be condemned. Because through Christ, we know that we will be received as the beloved of God. John 6, 37-40 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I come down from heaven, 
Not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. That's out of the mouth of our Lord. So this confidence is rooted in Christ and His promises. This is the blessing of a tranquil heart before God. Free and unrestricted communion with Him. I read a commentator, he said, the thought here is the confidence with which the Son appears before the Father, not of that which the accused appears before the judge. We can have just as much confidence before the face of God as Christ does, because we're in Christ. We can be confident that God will accept us. But in, in light of the two ways John says we can have assurance, I have two points of application for you, and they're paradoxical. Kind of like this passage was a little bit. You can rest on your works, and you can rest on Christ. You want to rest on Christ more than your works. Right? But it's paradoxical. The first one is this. I encourage you. Work as hard as you can to show evidence of your salvation. Work as hard as you can to show evidence. Live your life tightly to the Scriptures. Live your life so as to have proof when your heart condemns you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So that work out your, your own salvation doesn't mean like figure it out for yourself. He literally means outwork it. Show it. Do something with your hands. Work out what God has done in you. Show what God has done. Prove it. And do it, one, as we always do everything, for the glory of God, primarily. That He might be glorified in the world seeing what He has done in changing you. But secondarily, and this is a real reason, so that you may silence the condemnation of your heart. So remember, where there is no good works, there can be no assurance in your heart. So show evidence and tell your heart to shut up. And second, this is the big one. I said work as hard as you can. Rest as hard as you can in the work of Christ. Rest as hard as you can in God's declaration over you that you are saved by the work of Christ. God wants a people who trust in Him and His promises no matter how they feel. No matter who or what is condemning them. So lay your head down on the work of Jesus. He has taken your penalty. He has given you His righteousness. How can you be condemned? You've been justified. If you're trusting in Christ, you have been justified. If you've repented of your sins and put your trust wholly in Him, you have been justified. So hear these words of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The heart will condemn, 
but it is God who justifies. And he promises to save all who come to him through Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth in your word. Thank you for the, the precious promises that you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that our assurance is and finally founded upon Christ and his perfection and not our works. Lord, we appreciate the fact that you, you, you do give us assurance in some measure through our works, but God, thank you that you've given us something so much more rock solid, so, so much more steady. You've given us the eternal God, yourself, as the foundation of our assurance, and I thank you for that. Lord, let us rest. And God, let us also work. Let this not cause us to be lazy. Lord, I pray that if, if we're ever in sin, if we're ever in some kind of stupid rebellion, that you would rob our assurance from us faster than we can blink, that we might repent and receive it back. God, I also pray for the people who, whose hearts condemn them, who do indeed belong to you, whose heart is making a false accusation, a false condemnation, who lack assurance and desperately need it, God, I pray that you'd restore it to them. God, but all the while, help those brothers and sisters who are struggling to rest in the work of Christ, to rest in your promise toward your people that you will save all who come to Christ. Let us rest on your promise. We thank you for it and we worship you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.